All the time? Good. Welcome back. Hope you got a chance um, to revitalize yourself um, through your eating, through your conversation with each other, through a bio break. I'm uh, glad to see you at the end of all those things rather than during. So it's been really cool to have conversations with some of you in between our sessions because it's calling to mind things that are probably a whole nother day or whatever, but I just want to sort of throw things out so that you can go where you need to go with them. Um, I forgot to say one thing about fear that um, has been so cool for me. Um, I have a horrible fear of heights, uh, and that had translated into flying. But I have a brother who lives in Europe, and the only way I'll ever see him is either take a long boat ride or take a flight. So I did some sort of work uh, through Gestalt therapy that was very healing. But what motivated me to do that was that I wanted to see my brother. So sometimes what we most want or need in life moves us in the direction of, confronting a fear that we have or something is so enticing in our life that we hear somebody else talking about that we want to be a part of it, but it's going to take some effort on our part. So here's a, a phrase I use with myself all the time. If you want breathtaking experiences, you have to allow your breath to be taken from you. If you want breathtaking experiences, you have to be willing to have your breath taken from you. If you want breathtaking experiences, you have to be willing to let your breath be taken from you. And if you've ever had a breathtaking experience, you know how it goes, right? You just stand in the midst of that awe and wonder, you go, <gasps> it's scary and wonderful all at once. A gentleman and I were talking about having been in, um, in Croatia and visiting uh, Dubrovnik, which is this old, old, old walled city. My nephew just got married in Serbia last year, last summer. So um, we took in uh, Croatia while we were there, and, and Dubrovnik has an, an aerial cable car thing that takes you all the way up to the top, top, top of the mountain so you can overlook the walled city. And I always like... My, my sister was there and my nephews, and they're all like, whoa, let's go. Ah. So I sit in the back of the cable car with my hand on the pole like this <laughs> and hope there's not some smart, snotty kid who's running back and forth in the cable car, rocking it back and forth. But anyway, I do those things because I want my breath taken away. It scares me. But I want to do it. Not, and it's not foolhardy, like I don't jump off a cliff and feel how good it feels, you know. I don't do crazy things like that. But I do expose myself to the great things of life that take my breath away. So, for instance, I had never been present at a birth. This is going back years and years and years. And this couple invited me to be present at the birth of their son. And I went through all the Lamaze classes and da, da 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 and they'd always go, you're the father, the mother, and who are you? Kind of like that, you know. So it's a, at the, is there a censor here? <laughs> yep. that on? Yeah, there we go. Oh, thanks. So it comes time for the birth, you know, and, and uh, I'm experiencing all these things that for those of you who have been through it you, and you have children, you know what it is. Obviously, me as a celibate man, I've never been through any of that before. And, I, and we're going through the labor and the, um, what's it called, transition, where uh, the hormones switch within the woman and so... <laughs> 
So the doctor says, just say yes, whatever she says, just say yes, do whatever she tells you to do. So that, okay, so all that's, uh, we're through that, and the baby's head starts to crown. And I looked and I thought, my gosh, that's a human being. Uh, <laughs> talk about breathtaking experiences and what a credible gift to give to me but there were parts of me that were like oh I don't belong there and why would I be there but holy cow what a gift to experience the miracle of human life so so I guess what I'm saying to you is don't let fear that's going to take your breath away be the only cause that keeps you from doing something if it's a breathtaking experience that's going to open up for you some horizon of the love of God and the beauty of His creation and the, the wonder of what's ahead of us in life, please don't shy away from that. Do the work you need to do to get ready to do it. Surround yourself with people who will you know, kind of hold you while your breath is taken away so you can start breathing again. Somebody you can share that experience with so that you know that your place has a root in somebody's relationship, all those sorts of things. So that's, that's one thing about fear. The other thing is, uh, we were talking about, I talked at some point about um, how ministry is not a place to take care of our own needs. Do you remember me saying that? Okay. So, um, so I hope I was clear in saying that every one of us is needy, right? So, so if you have needs in your life, please don't think, I'm trying to say to you, you don't belong in ministry. What I'm trying to say is that needs, our personal needs, need to be met in a personal way. So in our friendships, in our relationships that are off the board on ministry, that's how they're, how they're to be met. Now I'm going to give you a couple things to look out for that would be signals to me for myself that I'm trying to take care of my needs in ministry. If I'm beginning to experience numbness, like if I'm feeling like a robot moving through ministry and nothing's really seeming to touch me on a deeper level, on an emotional level, it probably has to do with I have something going on inside of me that I don't want anybody else to see and I'm afraid that ministry is going to crack that open in me so I'll just become a robot. So it's a way of saying I need to engage my emotional life again but not here. I need to do that in spiritual direction, in friendship. I need to make sure I'm still alive. And when I do that, then, then my connection on a fully human basis will connect on a ministry level as well. But it won't be out of need. Also, if I find myself blaming everybody else for what's wrong, if my first move is every time something happens, I look for a person to blame other than myself. Or I badger myself. That would be a signal to me that something's wrong and I need to re-engage my life on a healthy basis. If I'm always complaining about something, it means usually that my personal needs are not being taken care of. And I'm expecting the people around me who are working with me, not my friends, people who are working with me, volunteering with me, I'm expecting them to take care of my personal needs and I start complaining that they're not. You've all heard happiness is an inside job. Who's in charge of your happiness? You are. And I'm in charge of mine. You do not have the power to take away my happiness. You shouldn't. I was with my, my dad just recently had to go into a nursing home. And he's, he's 91 years old. And he's the kind of guy that doesn't like to bother people. So I said, because he fell again, right? 
I said, Dad, you have to press the button. And he said, Dad, these people are so busy. I said, well, how do you know they're so busy? They tell me. So I called the social worker and I said, my dad said your people are complaining that they're too busy. That's not his problem. They should take care of that on their own time with you, not with him. Does that make sense? Right? So ministry is not a place to get me taken care of. Should they be taken care of? You bet they should. They have a right to be taken care of, but that's their job is to take care of it. And then work out the professional stuff along the way. And sometimes, isn't it true that some of us will get into ministry and it will just be too much for us to handle and we feel terrible and we may need to say, with my personal needs at this time, I can't do this. And I need to take care of me right now because I cannot take care of you in a healthy way. A very specific situation for we was when my brother died. This is a long time ago, but um, he died suddenly on Christmas morning, leaving behind a wife and four kids and 33 years old. And, uh, and my family was saying to me, oh, Don, what are you going to preach at his funeral? I'm like, are you kidding me? How in the world would I ever be able to get up and talk, much less give a homily that people would need to hear at the death of my brother? I need to take care of me. And we'll find somebody else who can preach well. But we have a responsibility to make sure that we care for ourselves so that when we're in ministry, it's about ministry, it's not about us. Then the other piece that is always a telltale sign for me is that I get cynical. Oh, you know them. They're always that way. What good would it do to talk to them? Because they never change. Why would I ever do that? Because it never gets any better. That's about us. There's something in us that's crying out for hope. And we're looking for it in the wrong place. Somebody else give me hope rather than me finding the source and anchor and root of hope, that never changes, no matter what the circumstance. So those are all asides, and I'm sorry that those were sidetracks, but I really felt like they came out of conversations and I tried to make sure that it's not just me trying to prove a point, but maybe something that would be helpful to you. So, let me talk about the last thing, and I really wrestled uh, in putting the day together today about whether to put this first or last, because to me it's the ultimately most important thing about being a good leader, and that's being a person of prayer. I put it at the end because I want it to sort of accentuate and bleed into everything else we've been talking about today. We hear that incredible reading about I could give my body over to be burned and sell everything I have and da 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 da. But if I do not have love, it is worthless. And in, in ministry, whatever it looks like, that love comes directly to us as a gift from God. And the way that's nurtured and encouraged and grows in us is in our experience of prayer, in union with God, and as a community worshiping together. So let me say a few things about, um, about prayer. So I did not, on the list you're going to get when you leave, there's a bunch of things that I talked about. I didn't put anything on there, quotes about prayer from the Bible, because there's a thousand of them. So I just ask you to pick your favorite one and go to it uh, and try to think about it. But some I would mention. Uh, so, so prayer was obviously a part of Jesus' life, right? Uh, you know, if you, if you think on a more uh, logical sort of un uh, in human way, you would say, 
well, why is Jesus praying? Because, I mean, aren't, isn't it like they're all one kind of thing? But that is almost like saying to your spouse, why would I tell you I love you? We're married. Right? Yeah, so prayer is not about what do I have to do, but it's an expression of love. And it's not one-sided. And this is the part that I wish, I wish with all my heart, we as Catholics and Christians would finally get. God's choice to love us is without condition and without end. That has never and will never change. Ever. So when I hear people deal, as I do on a regular basis in confession with their sins, I hear a whole lot... I wonder what God thinks of me. He must really not like me right now. I must be so disappointing to God. What a shame. (laughs) I mean, that might be how we are toward ourselves or we are toward other sinners. That is not how God is toward us. God only has one reaction, is only capable of one thing, and that is love. God is love. Any other thing we put on God's back, any other thing we say God is responsible, that does not have as its root love, then it's wrong. So in this two-way relationship of prayer... There's always going to be one, one part of the relationship that's going to be saying what? What? Yeah, that's it. And we're all like, oh, God, I'm so sorry to tell you this because oh, it's the thousandth time in my life I said I wouldn't do this again and I'm doing it again. So please don't hurt me. That is our prayer sometimes, isn't it? And can you imagine? (laughs) I always try to imagine this. What could God do? What more could God do? But boy, we are hard to convince. We are absolutely sure that we're such terrible people that we're the one person capable of changing God's mind. That's pretty arrogant. Talk about the height of arrogance. And yet it is what keeps us from being absolutely honest with God. I, I remember, so I'm just going to tell a story about myself. Um... So this is prior to seminary. I I was living what I would call a reckless and abandoned life. And because of living that way, I was in terrible emotional and physical shape. To the point where I was laying in bed one night and having these heart pains, you know. And I was convinced, because I'm a cradle Catholic, I was convinced that if I had died at that moment, God would hate me and I'd go straight to hell. So guess what? I didn't sleep all night long. I thought I'd trick God. I won't go to sleep, so I can't die, right? So the next day I got up. It, It happened to be a Saturday. And I went to a church that I had no recent connection with. Found out there was a priest in the confessional, made sure it was behind a screen, sat outside for a while and made my list of acceptable sins to tell him on the first try. So I went in and I knew the whole routine because I had been raised with it. And I went in and I said my acceptable list of 
sins that I thought, because I thought, of course, I would blow him away, right? So I said my acceptable list of sins, and there was this pause, and then he said, you know, I can tell by how your voice is shaking that this might not be all you have to say. But what I want to tell you is that God loves you, and he'll be waiting here through me for the next time you come and tell me all the rest. How's that? To me, that's what reconciliation is supposed to be about. That's what examine is supposed to be about. It's not, you know, let's carve ourselves into pieces and tell us what horrible people we are, what drastic, horrible things we've done so that we can feel terrible and drag our knuckles up to God and beg for His forgiveness. The whole purpose of examine is to bring us, this is where it's supposed to end, to bring us to praise God that He could love us no matter what. So we experience our sinfulness, our weakness, our failures, and then we let them be touched by the love of God. We go, wow, isn't that an incredible love? That you could look in my face knowing what you know about me and never abandon me. So I saw, say all that in foundation or context for prayer. That is who we're in relationship with. That's who will never abandon us. That's who has given us the promise of everlasting life. That's whose heart is connected with, me, with us. That's who has us in the palm of his hand. That's whose law is written in our hearts. And that will never change, ever, ever. So how do we pray? My hope is that we would do just like we would with anybody else we love and are intimate with. I often say to, to uh, it, I've used this a couple times in homilies at, at the parish. I said, what would it sound like if you're married and you went up to your spouse and you said, what's the least I have to do and you won't hate me? Well, thank you for that intimate relationship. So prayer is opening us to something much more than that, right? So we already have one side who's saying to us what? I love you no matter what. No matter what. And asking us, be one with me. And we say what? Well, not yet. I'm not ready. Because you're not going to like what you see. Or not yet because I'm not the perfect person who I think you want. Or not me now because I've been unfaithful and I don't know how to approach such love with the fact that I've been unfaithful. So personal prayer ought to look like an intimate conversation. Uh, it ought to be more than, that's the other thing I say about, uh, I always use married couples because uh, um, our church says that the place we're going to learn the most about God's relationship with us is as a husband and wife love each other in the sacrament of matrimony. That's what the church says. So, so if I'm trying to figure out my relationship with God, I look at married couples. I say, well, that live in your sacrament at the best. That's how God is with me and I am with God. So, so how do I want to relate? So you all know that if I'm in a relationship, an intimate relationship, and all I do is talk, doesn't work. If I pretend like I'm listening and I'm really not, doesn't work. If I listen but already know what the conclusion is, doesn't work. So prayer certainly has our input in it, right? Here I am, God, and this is who I am at this point. And we're always, I think all of us have heard this, and so then we're supposed to let God talk to us. Right? Any of you ever tried that? 
Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Yeah. The Buddhists have a thing called the monkey mind. You, have you ever encountered your monkey mind? You try to get quiet. You try to empty your, you know, I don't know what, you know, you get in your best prayer posture. You get in your best chair. You do your little, um, or whoop. <laughs> say your um, whatever it is that you repeat and then all of a sudden you start making a grocery list and the car has to be right that's what the Buddhists call the monkey mind and we don't, we don't know how to control it because we engage it all the time all the time and it's so much an engagement in our lives that we don't even know how to consciously unengage it but we have great practices, especially in the mystical tradition of, of the Christian tradition, about ways to do meditation so that we quiet the monkey mind and are able to present well-tilled soil for the Lord to drop his seeds in us, for his intimate relationship with us. So how do we do that? So uh, there are... Uh, I'm probably repeating this to many of you because you've been in this for so long, but part of the quieting of the monkey mind is you try to latch onto something that your body does naturally that you don't even have to think about. So what is that? Breathing or heartbeat, right? Yeah. So I don't know if you ever did this as a kid, but did you ever hold your breath till you passed out? Yeah. Maybe that's a guy thing. I don't know. But anyway, we did that. Um, what happens is you pass out and then you start breathing again because it's built into your system. Same way with your heartbeat, it just keeps beating. So that's an in, ingrown, embodied piece of ongoing rhythm. So uh, meditation is good if we have something like that. So when the monkey mind starts engaging and we become conscious, so that usually takes a, a little bit, then we go, oh, yeah, I'm meditating. So we go back to breathing, right? Oh, I'm, I'm breathing. Hmm. Let me listen to that breathing. And then they encourage us, these great meditators through the ages, to slow the breathing a little bit. Why? Because then it becomes even more conscious. Slow the breathing a little bit. It has the same effect as when I slow my words with you right now. It had a settling, centering, focusing effect. And we'll find ourselves more and more drawn into that depth of quiet. That depth of peace. And then the monkey mind gets engaged again and we call ourselves back to that rhythm. And we consciously slow the breathing. And the more we practice that, as opposed to simply abandoning ourselves to the monkey mind, the more we practice that, the more we will be practiced at meditation. Taking the time to slow our lives enough to listen to whatever it is that God has in mind for us. Any of you who have done this, you know that there's two things that happen. One is, you'll get some sort of an idea, an inspiration, a word or phrase. And most of us, I just love human beings. Most of us will go, oh, I guess that's my idea. I should not take that seriously. Or we discount those sort of words that enter our consciousness or those phrases. Why don't we take ourselves seriously? That God could use us as an instrument. So you might have a piece of paper and a pen there and you just write those phrases down. Does it have to make any sense? No. Most of the spiritual life makes no sense whatsoever. The reason for it is to stay in relationship with God, not for the product. Again, how would it sound if you said to your spouse, I'm in this for what I get out of it? Probably wouldn't go very well. So that's one thing that happens. The second thing that happens is that none of us can control and we cannot hold on to once it happens. There are from time to time in the midst of those quiet, peaceful moments what I would call a contemplative gift. And it's breathtaking. 
And it's that sense that God is so close to you that he could touch your heart at that moment. And if we try to grasp onto that, it's gone. Because it's God's gift to us, not something we possess. That's why it's important to keep tilling the soil. Keep making it available. Keep taking the time to open up that peaceful depth place in us. Now in the process, any of you know anything about the spiritual life, in the process, part of the monkey mind is going to say what? Who do you think you are? You kidding me? You think you're really capable of this? You're a nobody. And besides, you tried this 12 other times and you never stick with it. So just forget about it. That's the other part of the monkey mind that we just need to say, oh, that's the monkey mind. Let's just go back to what's important and create that deep and peaceful place that tills the soil for God to drop those gifts in us and through us. That's personal prayer. I think it's essential. I think any of us who try to do ministry without it are fools. Dangerous fools. And Pope Francis in his uh, Gospel, of Lo- Gospel of Joy, he has a whole section in the middle and he talks about preachers. And he says, anybody who gets up to preach who doesn't pray is scandalous. it's a part of our lives that we need to have so that what we give to people in ministry is based in that intimate relationship with God. We're not able to give people what we don't have. So if we don't know what it means to rest in God and His love for us, we can't help anybody else do that. Second part of prayer, I mean, there's a thousand things I could say about personal prayer, but I'm, I'm going to move on. Second part of prayer is communal prayer, which takes many different forms. Part of the form is of the communal prayer is what you did this morning and at noontime, which is joining in the communal life of prayer, the church. So this office of hours that you pray in morning and evening prayer, That's something that every priest and religious prays every day of their life if they're being faithful to the office. It's also a growing number of people in the church who are lay people are also joining in that prayer. It's really cool. Uh, um, It's somewhat repetitive, which is the function of communal prayer. So imagine a community that gathers together and says, we're going to pray now. Everybody start. Ready? Go. (laughs) It would be a lot of chaos, right? Um, So it needs to be somehow structured. And there are various ways to spice up that structure. Uh, And you and your community need to be aware of how to do that. Work with each other about how that might happen. Uh, I know that um, I could tell you a thousand stories about our time in Belize, but one of the uh, great gifts I have is I get to celebrate Mass in one of the villages while, while I'm there. And, um, and this time it was out in a village called Odisha, which is on the Guatemala-Belize border. It's about a three-hour drive on these horrible roads uh, from where we live. And uh, so we got there for Mass, and we were a half hour late because something happened in the road and couldn't get there. The people were there still praying and singing and I was a half hour late. Imagine where that would happen here in the United States. Uh, But they hadn't had Mass in six to eight weeks because the Eucharist is not available to them because there are two priests who take care of 26 villages. Now, so... I suspect we don't really appreciate the availability of Eucharist that we have. Anyway, so 
went there. I've done that for the last uh, 12 years. So there's always a, um, a translator with me through the whole Mass. English, catchy, catchy English. Um, and the only difference in the way we pray, other than language, is that uh, at the universal prayers or the prayers of petition, the invitation is given to offer your prayers to God. And we usually do it in some sort of a formal way, right? That whole community drops to their knees and begins to shout out loud their own petitions. So it's this concophony of voices that are lifting up to God their prayers. And it goes on for five to ten minutes. Of people seeking out God's help in their lives and in their communities' lives and in the world. It's an incredible experience. So I'm not saying that there's not a, a place for spontaneity or uh, uh, various kinds of prayer in our uh, communal prayer, but we do have to be somewhat organized to be able to pray together. It helps us. This is our ritual, especially for children. Children love ritual. Talk to parents. If you're not a parent or you don't remember this about your kids, they love to make sure that things are determined and have a certain time. And if you mess with their routine, watch out. So we have this routine as a community. Now, here's the part that I, I think we, we as the people who are supposed to be the leaders, um, people walking, what's the major um, complaint about Mass? It's absolutely boring. Right? So, I, uh, I oftentimes, if anybody ever says that to me, I say... Um, do you ever go to concerts? Hmm. Yeah. What does that have to do with Mass? I said, well, getting ready for the concert. Do you do anything to get ready? Well, yeah. Yeah, I, I usually listen to the group's music that I'm getting ready to go see. Oh. And uh, call people to make sure we have rides to get there. And... Uh, yeah, Sometimes we even talk about what we're going to wear. Maybe even get together afterwards and talk about how the concert was. Hmm. You ever do that for Mass? Well, why would I do that for Mass? See, it's in us. We know what to do. But we have never connected the intimacy to Eucharist that we do to other sorts of things. Now, some of it is our inheritance in the Eucharist. So I'm old enough to know that when I was a kid, I was given a prayer book that had nothing to do with the Mass. It had various personal prayers that I could pray, and I was taught that when the bell rang, I should look, because Father is going to show me something important. So the bell would ring, up would go the host. The bell would ring, up would go the cup. Now, get back to your personal prayer. And I'm old enough to have grown up at a time when the adults in my life did not receive communion because they were told the only time they should receive communion was at the time of their death. And the only times they needed to be at Mass was the offertory, the consecration, and communion. That's our inheritance. And it's going to take a long time to get out of that. For a long time, we told people, you don't know enough to participate in this. It's really beyond your job description. Just do your thing and we'll let you know when you can be involved. And then... 1968 or 69, somebody decides it should be different than that and now expects it to be different in one lifetime. Sorry, not going to happen. But can we encourage in ourselves and in the people we know how to make communal prayer better? By starting with ourselves. So you're about to do some Lexio Divina. 
I think that's a cool way to prepare a family or yourself individually or myself individually for celebrating the Eucharist. It's a time to take the Word of God. To take the Word of God. And this is the part that I'm afraid we're really, really bad at. So you would probably be like my dad. So my dad's 91, and he said to me about two weeks ago, he said, Don, I go to Mass every day here. They wheel me up to Mass, and I go to Mass every day. Is there any chance we'd ever get different stories than we hear every day? Because I've been alive long enough, I've heard them all. (laughs) Now, he's from the generation that was taught, you're too stupid to know about Scripture. We'll tell you about it. But he's also not been trained, you know, in 91, I'm not sure that he could do this now, but not trained to let the Scripture always be alive. When I was, um, I want to watch my time here. Are we okay time-wise? Okay, all right. So when I was about to be ordained a priest, and they were starting to talk about vows and promises and all that, I was sort of all right with celibacy and a little less all right with obedience. Uh, but the part that was, and, but I said yes to both of those and have lived those, but the part that was scary to me was that I would have to preach every day of my life. And I thought, it's going to be the same Bible. Nobody's going to bring me a new one. And every three years, it's the same stories over and over again. And I, and I knew at that point, if those scriptures dried out, I would be dead. I could not remain a priest and just go blah, 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 blah. It would kill me as well as those of you who would have to listen to me. So that was my prayer at ordination is, God, please help me to keep the scriptures alive in my life. Breathe new life and new flavor into them so that when I read them, I am smart enough to shut up and listen to where you lead me before I decide what you want me to say. And that, for me, is the first step of Lexio. The first step of Lexio for me, which I always do. Now, at our parish, we're lucky enough to have three of us priests. And every Tuesday afternoon, we get together and we do Lexio together for the weekend coming up. Praying the scriptures together and seeing where God leads us with those scriptures. It's, it's a one, you know, we have one priest who's from Nigeria, uh, ordained two years, and uh, me, 41 years, and Bob's been ordained about, I don't know, 45, 46, 47 years. What an incredible difference of experience uh, in life. And what God brings to us through that meditation, before we actually go and say, okay, then this is what I'm going to preach. We always try to listen for what is God saying to me right now through this story that I've heard a hundred thousand times. But what is it that jumps out at me? What, how does this connect with life? What's the purpose of this scripture at this time in my life? And then I just, we just have to be quiet. We're just too smart for our own good being. Or we think we are. We ought to give God the first shot. God, this is your word. Tell me what you want me to say. Lead me through these words. What is it? What inspiration? What joy? What sorrow? What understanding? What source of peace? Now, we always end up with a thousand things more than you can use in a homily. And that's the the hallmark of a good preacher is to learn how to edit, 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 edit. But it's such a richness. It's also the reason that I don't know any good preacher who saves his homilies year from year. Because it's just too easy to get lazy. Or if they save them, they don't go until the very end to look at them rather than the beginning. So if you do Magnificat, if you do 
uh, whatever that other one is that's out there, or you do the Word among us, or you do whatever it is, it's good to read the Scripture, but don't go to that other part right away. Because that's somebody else's reflection about the Scripture. Let God inspire you first. Guess why? Because He loves you. Right? Haven't we established that? His only choice is to love you. So just be ready for some gifts of love, whatever they are, out of those scriptures. So that's, to me, a way to beef up those communal prayers that we have together to come to Eucharist. To me, it's so enriching to know that a number of our parishioners do that. They come ready. We even had a, a... we just started this thing this year for all the families that have been away from the church for a while and were bringing their kids in for sacraments that weren't at the regular sacrament time. We just said to the families, would it be good for you if you had a whole family catechesis, like all of you would come on Sunday morning and have some catechesis before Mass that we'd break open the Word and really become familiar with the Scriptures before you'd walk into Mass on Sunday? We started with four families and now we have nine in that group. And it's made such a difference in the world for the children and the adults to be connected with the Eucharist ahead of time. So when they walk in, they can go, oh, that's the scripture I just heard. That's the scripture I just prayed over. That's the scripture we just talked about. So it's not cold, but there's a familiarity. Um, I would suspect also that in your parish, there's some group of people who are in charge of leading and directing the liturgies and the music at Mass. They would drop over dead if one of you said, I really want to get involved in that to make the Eucharist a great community celebration. They would fall over on the ground and then get up and then welcome you into their group, I'm sure. And if they wouldn't, then maybe you need to examine what the purpose of that group is. So there's individual prayer and communal prayer. That is the basis of our prayer life. And I think you've been through the basics of prayer to know, like we just went through examines, so we know that there's prayers of thanksgiving, there's prayers of praise, there's prayers of petition. So, So there's various styles in prayers. There's our rote prayers that we have that we can very much pray as a community together. There's spontaneous prayers. There's um, um, charismatic prayer in the church that's led by the gifts of the Spirit, which, as a deacon at St. Clair's Parish, I was cynical about. So this is like you're hearing my confession here this morning. But when I went to St. Clair's, I heard that they had this very exuberant and lively charismatic prayer group. And in my mind... I was like, well, that will be a group I will never want to be a part of. And it was because of my early childhood experience of living just two blocks away from a Pentecostal church where we used to go and sneak and look through the windows and watch people rolling down the aisles and things like that. And, and being a male person in this century the last thing any of us guys want to do is be out of control. We like to look tough and together. So I knew that that group had the chance to see something less than that in me, so I decided ahead of time I wasn't going to go. Well, they would not let go of me. And so they, it was almost like, all right, I'll go, so you'll quit calling, leaving messages, finding me at the back of church, all those other sorts of things. My life would not be as enriched as it is now without the gift of that level of prayer in my life. It was one of those first moments in my adult life where I learned to trust the Spirit more than I did me. And that was a huge step. Because what followed on that was, oh my gosh, if the Spirit is trustworthy, then so must the Father and the Son. And maybe I could continue to make these steps in my life where I turn 
my life over to God rather than me running my life. Our Catholic Church is so rich in a tradition of prayer, so rich in the opportunities that are there. I'm hoping that you just don't get stuck in one place in one way and not branch out to be enriched by the gift of the prayer life of the church. In terms of prayer and ministry, I want to say a couple things. Prayer and spiritual life is not meant to be an escape from real life. So, a lot of people nowadays live their spiritual life and think that that's a replacement for living. So, prayer and worship is not meant to disconnect us with the world, but it's meant to connect us to the world so that we can help bring about the kingdom of God as we say in the Our Father, here on earth as it is in heaven. So religion is not an escape route from earth. But it's giving us the tools and the relationship to transform the earth into the kingdom of God as it will be in heaven. Now most of us don't even believe that would ever happen. We have become so cynical about our world and the power of God, we're just like, get me out of here. Just trying to be good, so I go to heaven and let the rest of it work itself out. Shame on us if that's where we are. Nobody else has a bigger advantage than we do. We know how it all is going to end. We know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. We know that He conquers all things. We know that He has the power to do it all through us. But we act like we don't believe that at all. We give in to cynicism and hopelessness and blaming and scapegoating. Always finding somebody else for the reason we don't do what God is asking us to do. It's their fault, not ours. So prayer is not to meant to be like it was on the Transfiguration Mountain. You know, this glorious Transfiguration vision given to the disciples. And what is their response? Well, Jesus, let's just stay here. This is really cool. <laughs> but to actually engage in that intimate relationship with God and then descend the mountain to be able to transform the world in His image. So, I think I'm going to pause right now. And um, I, let's see, I think you have a stand-up break for five minutes.